Hello and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler and we're in the fourth part of our Parshat Va'era series. We're today going to be starting our study of the Makot, which begins in Perak Zayin, Pasuk Yudalid. Of course, the first Makah is Makat Dam, the plague of blood. Um, but we begin with an introduction. It is, as we might imagine, a rather dramatic introduction. In Perak Zayin, Pasuk Yudalid, uh, we begin with God speaking to Moshe. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, kaved lev paro, me'ein l'shalach ha'am. So here Hashem says to Moshe, Paro's heart is heavy. He refuses to send out the people. Now this heaviness of heart is going to repeat itself many times throughout the uh, plague narrative. Um, in fact, the word kaved is going to be a very important word throughout this narrative. Of course, we can't forget Moshe's heavy mouth at the Mamad Hasne in Perak Dalid. There Moshe had said about himself, Kvad uchvad lashon anochi. I am heavy of speech, I'm heavy of mouth, I'm heavy of tongue. We spoke a little bit there about what that meant. Uh, and here, of course, we are beginning the story by wondering whether or not a heavy mouth can sway a heavy heart. Ultimately, what we're going to see throughout the story is not only Paro's heavy heart, but also what the results of this heavy heart are. The results of the heavy heart are, and the, the heart that is hardened with this heaviness uh, that, that doesn't, that prevents Paro from properly letting the people go and listening to God, um, what results from all of this are many, many heavy plagues. So what we have is Arov Kaved and Dever Kaved. And, and Barad Kaved Me'od and the Arbe, the locusts, are also going to be described as Kaved. The culmination of all of this is going to be at the Yamsuf, at Kriyat Yamsuf, where we are going to be told that they drive their chariots with a certain heaviness. Of course, we know that the chariots sink into the mud once the water begins to rush back into the Yamsuf uh, after the, the Jews after Am Yisrael has passed through the Amsuf. But I really think that there's one other point that has to be made here about the use of the word kaved, and that is that the culmination, or perhaps the ultimate goal of this story, is when God says in several times in Parakudalid, the Ikavda Bifaro, and I will be honored by Paro, the Cholchelo, and by all of his soldiers, via Du Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim will know that I am God. And that concept appears several times in chapter 14, in verse 17 and in verse 18. Both Rashi and Ibn Ezra understand the word ikavda as referring to God's honor. And so here we have this idea that, most, that, that Paro's hardening of his heart, the heaviness of heart, which ultimately is partially brought about and encouraged by God, also leads to these very heavy plagues, which ultimately brings about the result of the story, which is, of course, honoring God, which I think brings brings together some of the ideas that we've previously been developing in our shirim. Look at this initial uh, command of God to Moshe in Pasuk Tekvav, Lech el paro baboker, hine yotze hamayma, v'nitzavta likrato asfat hayeor, Go to Paro in the morning. Behold, he is going out to the water and stand to greet him on the banks of the Nile. And the staff which you had changed to a snake, 
take in your hands. So this is a very, I think, a dramatic moment. Prior to God telling Moshe what to say to Paro, he actually tells Moshe how to approach Paro, with what kind of comportment he is meant to approach Paro. First of all, he tells him that he should be, hold, he should be standing to greet him in Nitzav Talikrato. The word Nitzav suggests an authoritative presence, perhaps even somewhat of a threatening posture. It certainly is an impressive uh, kind of standing. We have it in several other places. In Sefer Shemot, for example, Moshe is standing in the tzor when he when he has the theophany when he when he uh, experiences the re revelation of God. We also have Moshe standing at the top of the mountain in the story with Amalek. The word nitzav suggests something that is formal that has a certain uh, a certain kind of bearing, and that's what God tells Moshe to. That's how God tells Moshe to approach Paro. Now, of course, he meets Paro on the banks of the Nile in the morning. Now, this, I think, is very significant. We have, first of all, the centrality of the Nile. We're going to see how central the Nile is uh, throughout the story, but certainly in the story of Makat Dam. It is no coincidence that the first plague is a plague that strikes the Nile. The Nile, it's well known, is the jewel of Egypt. It's the source of their economic prosperity. It is, of course, the reason uh, that they were militarily successful. Uh, the Nile is certainly a source of great pride for Paro himself. We have Paro in Sefer Yechizkel. As I mentioned in the last class, we have Paro swimming in the Nile River, and he is saying, he's declaring as he swims in the river, according to Yechizkel, he's declaring, It is my Nile. I created it. He takes credit for the Nile, because, of course, the Nile is what makes him such a powerful paro. So the fact that Moshe greets him on the Nile River, and, of course, he's going to strike the Nile River, it means that he's striking at the very heart of paro's power, at the very heart of his prosperity. Um, at the same time, the fact that he meets him in the morning, well, the morning suggests many things. It suggests the dawn of a new day. It suggests a promising beginning. But at the same time, of course, we can't forget that one of the most important gods in the Egyptian pantheon is the sun god. They actually had several gods that were associated with the sun, perhaps the most famous of which is Ra. But I think that there is a sense here just in terms of the way in which the, the kind of scenario that the Pusset builds for us, we have the sense that, that God tells Moshe to go greet Paro in the morning as the great sun shines on the Nile River as the great, almost, uh, I would say, uh, unbeatable king of Egypt stands there in all of his glory, in all of his pride, and Moshe is going to approach him unafraid and with the name of God on his lips. So all of this, I think, is very significant, just to get a little bit of a sense of the scenario and the background of the plague narrative. Um, now, of course, one of the questions that we would ask is, what, in fact, is Paro doing at the or in the morning, and there are many different answers to this. Uh, we have the famous answer that Rashi brings, which is that he is attending to his physical needs partially because he has self-deified and 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 he regards himself as a god and he presents himself as a god and therefore he has to hide his humanness from his people. One doesn't necessarily need to go that far. 
to suggest that he is attending to his physical needs, perhaps he's bathing, although it does seem less than likely that Paro would actually bathe in the Nile. The Nile is a dangerous place. It actually did have crocodiles in it, and still this remains a possibility. Ibn Ezra suggests that he's there uh, looking, checking out the level of the Nile, rather like counting his money. It's possible that he's, you know, just taking a, a, a walk in the morning. That's the that's what the rush bomb suggests. We, we simply don't know, but certainly he does not expect to be accosted by Moshe. At this point, God tells Moshe what to say to Paro, and I'm beginning in Pasuk Tetzayin. The Amarta Elav, and you should say to him, Adonai Elohei Ha'ivrim shlachani elecha leimor, shalach et ami, v'yavduni b'midbar, v'hine lo shamata ad ko. And you should say to him, God, the God of the Ivrim, has sent me to you, saying, Send my people so that they may serve me in the desert. And behold, you have not listened until now. There is a bit of a wordplay between the words, Hinelo Shamata Ad Ko, and the beginning of the next Pasuk. You didn't listen until the word Ko. It really means, of course, until now. But of course, the fact that the next, the next Pasuk begins with the same word suggests that from now on, says God to Paro, you are going to listen to me. You will be forced to listen to me. Ko amar Adonai, bezot teda ki ani Adonai, hine anochim make bamate asher biadi, al hamayim asher bayaor, v'nefchu l'dam, v'hadaga asher bayaor, tamut, uva'ash hayaor, v'nilu mitzrayim, lishtot mayim, so says God, with this you will know that I am God. Behold, I am striking with my staff that is in my hand upon the waters that are in the Nile, and they will change to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall turn putrid, and the Mitzrim, the Egyptians, will be unable to drink water from the Nile. So first of all, we have the introduction of Koamar Hashem. This, of course, clashes what, with what we saw previously in Parakeh, where Paro began his own words with the words Koamar Paro in Parakeh, Pasuk Yud. So here, God's words clash with Paro's words. Of course, we already saw the Koamar Hashem in Parak Dalid, Pasuk Kavbet, when God had sent Moshe down to Egypt, right when he was on his way to that mysterious incident that takes place at, at the lodging. Uh, in any case, here he opens this next section with the words, so says God. He continues with the words, Hashem. with this you will know that I am God. This also, again, I think it's a very significant moment. It feels filled with drama, filled with significance. The uh, the, the idea of saying, of course, also brings us back to Paro's words in Parakeh, when he first encounters Moshe and Aaron, when he says, Lo yadati et Hashem, I don't know God, and also I will not send the people out, because I simply don't know this God. And so the, the, the story of the plagues has, as one of its primary goals, um, it, it, it wants to combat this lack of knowledge that Paro uh, states at the beginning of the story. And what we're going to see is that when we do divide the plagues into their three groups, we're going to see, and that's of course the groups that are uh, oftentimes uh, uh, oftentimes discussed in Midrashim at the Seder, the groups that are called Ditzach Adash 
Be'acha, we, we often refer to it as Be'achav, but really Makat Be'chorot seems to stand on its own. So it's three groups of three, followed by this, you know, a final um, uh, plague. Um, each of these groups starts with a statement that with this you will know, and that seems to open each group. What is a bit confusing in Pasuk Yudzayin is that Moshe introduces his words as Koamar Hashem, Bizot Hedakiani Hashem. So says God, with this you'll know that I am God. And then he sort of seems to shift into this description of what he is going to do, but he still is speaking as if God is speaking. It's a little bit confusing. He says, Behold, I am going to strike with the staff that is in my hand the water that is in the Nile, and it will turn to blood. Um, so it's a, it's a little confusing because Moshe, at the beginning of the verse, seems to be citing God, but certainly when he's describing himself standing with a staff in his hand, it seems a, a bit too anthropomorphic to suggest that these are this is the way that God is representing himself. I think that what we see here is a, a phenomenon that we, we see a great deal of in the prophets, perhaps it's even more striking in this in this example of Moshe, the ultimate prophet, and that is that oftentimes there's a blurring between the prophet and God. Uh, Moshe here is considered to be the long arm of God, right? When he says Makeb Mate Asher Biadi, the the staff that is in my hand. Uh, he is also seems to be drawing from the power of the Yad HaChazaka, the strong arm of God. Moshe is completely identified with God here. And we see this really, I think, throughout the story. In fact, I would say that if you look at the very last psukim, the very last verses of the Torah, when we get to Devarim, Perak Lamedalev, really the last two verses, what you see there is how deeply Moshe's identity is um, is is that of being God's messenger, and that's why there's a lot of blurring between Moshe's words and God's words. Um, when we have here the um, the description of the death of the fish, it's not just that the water of the Nile will turn to blood; it's also that the fish are going to die, and the Nile will become putrid, and they won't be able to drink from the Nile, um, not just because it's blood, but also because it's stinks and it's uh, the, the, the death of all of the fish is also something that is going to prevent them from drinking. But the, the loss of the fish is not a negligible economic loss either. If you remember when Amisrael described what they longed for in Egypt, one of the first things that they set their sights on or that they recall is, in fact, it is the first thing that they mention in B'mivar Perakid Aleph is the Daga. We remember that fish that we used to eat. And of course, it seems to be rather uh, self-evident that fish would constitute an, an important part of the Egyptian diet. And so the loss of the fish is an added uh, punishment here to the turning of the Nile into blood. Just spend a, a minute or two talking a little bit about the idea of turning the Nile into blood, aside from the fact that they're striking, as I said, at the heart of Egypt's prosperity, at the heart of their sense of pride uh, and well-being. Um, every one of the of the plagues is treated by the different Midrashim as a midah keneged midah, as a punishment that is deserved by the Egyptians some of which are more compelling and some are less. But here I think that there's 
a connection to what the Egyptians did to Am Yisrael that is really very, very strong. And that is, of course, that the bloody Nile is a fitting punishment for Pharaoh's earlier decree in which the Nile was filled with Jewish male babies. Of course, there's almost a sense that it's not even a, a punishment as much as it is a consequence. Once Paro has filled the Nile with uh, corpses, so of course the Nile turns to blood. So even though obviously this is not a consequence because this is supposedly or presumably it seems to be many, many years later, uh, Moshe has grown up. He's already 80 years old. This is at least 80 years later. And it seems that the decree has stopped. But even so, by Moshe coming along and turning the Nile into blood, he is recalling this previous decree and he's telling the Egyptians this decree is a deserved punishment or this plague is a deserved punishment for the earlier decree. There are other Midrashim, though, that go in, a, in other directions in terms of the deserved punishment of this particular plague, what we call Midah K'nege Midah. There's a Midrash that claims, specifically with regard to the fish dying, that the fish are a, um, a symbol of fertility, the Yidgu Larov, and because the Egyptians tried to limit Am Yisrael's fertility, therefore their fish, which is a symbol of their fertility, uh, are, are, are going to die. Um, there's a third idea that I want to mention here about the Nile turning to blood, and that is that there's this sense, I mean, blood in Tanakh often symbolizes death, and that there's a sense that we have throughout the Makot, throughout the plagues, that what is happening here is the, 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 the slow or perhaps rapid death of Egypt, right? The Egyptian um, Nile is becoming filled with blood. It both indicates the impurity of the Egyptians and also the impending death, not necessarily of each Egyptian, but of this ancient Egyptian society, which has been deemed untenable by God. Okay, let's look now at Parazine Pasukya Tet. God said to Moshe, and more El Aharon, speak to Aharon, take your staff, and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Egypt, stretch out your hand on all of the waters of Egypt, on the rivers, on the Nile sources, on the lakes and on every body of water, and it shall become blood. And there was blood in all of the land of Egypt, also on the trees and on the stones. So this is a bit of a confusing pasuk. There are several things that happen that, that are, are uh, questionable in this pasuk. First of all, <clears throat> why we shift to Aharon in this pasuk. That is one question, why Aaron <clears throat> does not actually strike the water, but instead stretches out his hand over the water, and why here we're no longer focused on the Nile, which is what we were focused on previously, but we're actually focused on all of the water in Egypt. So let's start with the fact that um, we have the entrance of Aaron into the picture here. Um, there, there are many, many people ask this question, why suddenly Aaron comes into the picture, but I think that the first thing that we have to note is that we already have a sense that there's a complexly intertwined relationship between God, Aharon, and Moshe. It's not exactly clear 
what it's going to be, although uh, Aharon seems to be sort of uh, posed as the intermediary between Moshe and the people and Moshe and Paro. So it shouldn't particularly surprise us that here we have this sort of uh, complexly intertwined relationship. Um, there are some other ways of looking at this. I think most people are familiar with the famous Rashi that tells us that Moshe was unable to bring about the first three plagues because of uh, his gratitude that he owes these inanimate objects that protected him. He can't strike the Yaor, for example, says the Midrash, because the Nile River hid him as a child, uh, and therefore he can't bring the first two plagues because also frogs. He would have had to hit the, um, the he would have had to strike the Nile, and he can't bring the third plague according to this same Midrash because he used the dirt in order to hide the Egyptian who he killed in Perakvet, and so he shouldn't be striking the Afar. Um, the, the, this is a very unusual Midrash. I think that perhaps I'll just uh, you know, summarize this Midrash by saying that the Midrash is, seems to be really focusing our attention on the importance of Hakarat HaTov, the importance of gratitude, which is, of course, the basis for our relationship with God. How many times later in Tanakh is God going to say to the people, I took you out of Egypt and therefore you must obey me. You must follow me. You must listen to my commands. And so this notion of Hakarat HaTov, which is applied in this Midrash in rather peculiar fashion towards inanimate objects, may be trying to underscore how important at the outset of the story it is for us to recognize the importance of Hakarat HaTov. Um, I want to make two other points about the Moshe and Aaron uh, intertwining here. One is that what we, what we seem to see, at least in this plague, is that Moshe seems to have some sort of uh, face-off or showdown with Paro. God sends Moshe to Paro, as he said before, as an Elohim le Paro. He becomes almost this kind of figure of um, representing God in a very uh, authoritative and perhaps ominous way, whereas Aharon seems to oftentimes be having a uh, confrontation with the Khartoumim. Whenever we have these magicians, we tend to have Aharon uh, functioning as well. And perhaps somehow, we don't exactly know what these Khartoumim are. We certainly know that they are um, some kind of magician. Um, but it's possible that the word Khartoumim, which many of the Mepharshim think comes from the word Kheret, which is the art of inscribing with a metal object, perhaps that means that the Khartoumim were actually scribes or of the elite class who knew how to write. Others have suggested that it relates to the Egyptian word Kharitof, Khartoumim, and that represents some sort of priestly class in Egypt. It's, it actually means literally the chief or the head, but it's often used to refer to the Kohanim, the priests of idolatry, in which case it might be worth at least suggesting that Moshe and Aaron seem to have two different roles, at least the way that the plague uh, story seems to, um, seems to play itself out, in which Aaron's role is vis-a-vis -vis the Khartoumim, these priest-like, perhaps, uh, magicians. Um, one more suggestion with regard to the two different roles of Moshe and Aaron, and this also relates to the slight uh, contradiction that we have here 
between the Nile changing to blood and all the water changing to blood. When God first speaks to Moshe, he tells him to turn the Nile to blood. Later on in, in Pesuk Yutet, when God tells Moshe to speak to Aaron, he says, well, Aaron should change all of the water in Egypt to blood. Well, there seem to be two separate goals for Makat Dam, two separate goals, which we're going to see in other plagues as well. One is a symbolic goal and the other is a punitive goal. From a symbolic perspective, it is most important that God strikes the Nile for all of the reasons that we've mentioned previously. From a punitive perspective, it's perhaps somewhat somewhat meaningless to strike the Nile if there are so many other sources of water in Egypt, such as these lakes and these rivers and these other tributaries from the Nile and all sorts of bodies of water that are mentioned here. And therefore, perhaps we have two different aspects of the story, one which stresses the punitive component in which the Egyptians are prevented from drinking any water at all. That's the purpose of, uh, that certainly is one of the purposes of this plague. And the other is uh, what Moshe brings about, which is this very dramatic, symbolic moment in which Moshe comes to Paro and says, I'm going to strike your Nile, that Nile that you think that you are in charge of and that represents the source of your glory and the source of your wealth. Uh, what does it mean here, that there's also blood on the trees and, and on, the, on the stones? This might be just a way of saying there was blood everywhere. The minute that you start turning all of the bodies of water into blood, well, there's just blood everywhere. Some of the Midrashim go in this direction. Others suggest that the Eitzim and the Avanim are uh, representing the idolatry, that um, the idolatry was covered in blood as a result of this uh, of this plague. And of course, Eitzva Evan does sometimes uh, become a word pair that refers to idolatry and idolatrous uh, rites in, in Tanakh. And uh, so certainly it's possible some archaeological discoveries have shown that houses of idolatry were often situated on the banks of the Nile. It's possible that the blood, therefore, was meant on some level also to sully the um, and, and desecrate the uh, idolatry and the, the holy places in Egypt. Um, and another possibility is the famous, again, Rashi's ideas tend to be the most famous, the famous uh, Midrash that is cited in Rashi, in which he says that the Eitim and the Avanim are the water that were in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone, meaning even if somebody was drinking from water in their own home and it, we we're no longer talking about a natural water source, that water also turned to blood. It seems to be uh, 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 based on a pasuk in Tilima Einchet. Tilima Einchet, the 78th chapter of the book of Tilim, is one of the two Mizmarim in Tilim, which lists all of the plagues and then offers some sort of exegesis, some sort of retelling, which involves an interpretation of the plagues. But when it does describe blood in Pasuk Memdalid in verse 44 in Psalms 78, the Pasuk tells us, Vayafoch ledam yorehem v'nozlehem bal yishtayim. And the blood in the, and the Nile water turned to blood, and all of their waters they could not drink. So perhaps here this Midrash is, is uh, picking up from that Pasuk in, um, in Mizmaritili. Okay, let's go on. Let's look in Pasuk Kaf. Vayasuchin Moshe v'aron kasher tziba adunai vayarem bamateh. Vayach et hamayim asher bayaor 
לעיני פרעה ולעיני עבדיו, ויהפכו כל המים אשר ביאור לדם. And Moshe and Aaron did this, just as God commanded. And he lifted up his staff, and he struck the water that was in the Nile, in front of Paro and in front of his servants. And all of the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. What is, of course, I think really magnificent about this pasuk is that it's really somewhat ambiguous as to who did what. What is very clear is that the pasuk tells us that Moshe and Aaron are doing exactly what God commanded, since it is somewhat left unclear exactly what God intended, who is supposed to lift up their hand, who is supposed to strike the water, who is supposed to strike the Nile water, how are the other waters um, you know, meant to turn into blood. Here we have this sort of uh, ambiguous description of, and he lifted up his staff and he struck the water in the Nile, right? It seems to be that, uh, that Aram was supposed to lift up his arm with his staff in it, and it was Moshe that was supposed to strike the Nile. So it's possible that the first section, Vayarem Bemate, is describing Aaron, and the second section of striking the Nile is describing Moshe. But the Farshim, the different um, uh, exegetes, go in all sorts of directions with this. And again, I think what we are meant to understand is that it's somewhat deliberately ambiguous and that we have this complexly interwoven plague which was brought about by Moshe and Aaron together in the name of God and both of them represent God here. So there has, there's a sense that in the first plague we have a ceremonious beginning, an introduction to all of the major players here. Uh, what is perhaps interesting as a side point is that in the final story of Moshe and Aaron's, I would say, undoing in Bemidbar, Perak Kaf, Pasuk Yud Aleph, when instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe strikes the rock. We have the very same words there. Vayarem Moshe et yado, vayach et asela. He lifts up his hand and he strikes the rock. And that very much reminds us of the Pasuk here, which suggests, and one could make a lot of, uh, draw a lot of conclusions from this, but I'll just perhaps suggest, I think that uh, perhaps Moshe and Aharon um, can't really exit from a certain kind of leadership, a certain kind of uh, representation of God, perhaps wielding the stick comes more naturally to them than speaking. So that is certainly one possibility. Let's see the Pasuk Kaf Aleph, the Hadaga Asher Bayar Meta, and the fish that was in the Nile died, or and the Yor, the Nile turned putrid, and the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was in all of the land of Egypt. And that's pretty much the fulfillment of what we saw before, especially if we understand the words as some sort of general way of describing blood everywhere. We have the re-entrance of those uh, pesky magicians, the ones who are so uh, confident and so certain that they can also use their magic rights in order to do the very same things that Moshe and Aaron are doing. And the magicians of Egypt did the same thing with their latehem. It's a bit of a question what latehem exactly means. Does it mean something that is secret, like the word loot? Does it come from the word lahat, as we had previously in the word lahatehem, which seems to suggest some kind of 
uh, spell or magic that is done with fire. We simply don't know exactly what the word lathehem means, but they also do this with their magic. And therefore, God, uh, Paro uh, hardened his heart, he strengthened his heart, and he did not listen to them, just as God had said. And Paro turned. And he came into his house. And he did not let his heart pay attention also to this. And so it seems that the presumed success of the magicians um, seems to mean that Paro does not uh, take this plague very seriously. He's unmoved by the plague. He is certainly not interested in the desperation of his own people. If you look in Pasuk of Dalid, and all of the Egyptians were frantically digging around the Nile to find water to drink. I added the word frantically. They were digging around the Nile to find water to drink because they could not drink from the water of the Nile. It certainly is possible, and some of the Midrashim actually do mention this, that when it says, he did not pay attention also to this, this is not just Paro not paying attention to God and not paying attention to Moshe and Aaron, as we suggested previously, but he's also not paying attention to his own citizens. Because, of course, when the king goes into his house, he finds plenty of water. That is, of course, if we're not accepting uh, the literal, uh, literally the Midrash that says that all water turned to blood, presumably, just as Marie Antoinette was unmoved by the, um, by the suffering of her people and said, well, if they have no bread, they can eat cake. Well, so Paro goes into his palace and there he presumably has plenty of water for himself and he does not have to watch the panic of his people who are suffering without water. Let's complete Makat Dam with this final pasuk, Vayimalei shivat yamim acharei hakot Adonai et hayeor. And seven days went by after God struck the Nile. So first of all, I think we have to note here that God struck the Nile. That brings me back to what I was saying in Pasuk Yud Zion, when Moshe was standing with the staff in his hand and speaking in the name of God, I am going to strike the Nile. I am going to strike with my staff and turn it into blood, as if it was God speaking. And you look here in this final Pasuk, and we're told, in fact, it was God who struck the Nile. It may have been Moshe, who seems to have struck the Nile, but the message is, is that Moshe is functioning as the long arm of God. And so when we have here, that really ends the section in which there is a complex intertwining of the three major figures that bring the plague narrative to bear upon the Egyptian people. And that is first and foremost God, and then Moshe and Aaron, who are functioning as representatives of God. In terms of this seven-day period, it's not exactly clear whether or not the plague itself lasts for seven days, or is there a seven-day hiatus between plagues? Is God waiting for Paro's tshuva for seven days, or is seven days the punishment period? As it is often in Tanakh, uh, punishments often seem to come in sevens, especially in Vayikra Perakavav. Perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit later. We don't really know. There, the Midrash does tell us and does assume that each plague uh, took around a month and the entire story takes 
something around a year. That's uh, the, the, the time frame that we have in the Midrash. But uh, the only other plague where we actually have a time duration that is described is darkness, where we see three days, and blood, where we have this idea of seven days, but it's not exactly clear what these seven days refer to. In our next installment, we will begin with Makat Sfardea, with the plague of frogs.